Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. And today I get to bring in one of my good old friends, David Gregory. And um, he is the principal behind Severn Films, which is a, a niche DVD releasing company that specializes in cult movies. And um, one of the reasons why I thought it would be great to bring him in, aside from the fact that uh, Severn is now celebrating their 10th anniversary, right? That's correct. Yeah, and it's like right about now. It is right about now. We had our 10th anniversary uh, party last weekend, last Saturday. Yeah, over at the Egyptian. Over at the Egyptian, triple feature of Driving Massacre, Beyond the Darkness, and Bag Boy, Lover Boy, and then a boozy party afterwards. Well, actually, before, during, and afterwards. And after, I was going to say. <laughs> things couldn't have changed that much. <laughs> so um, why I thought it'd be great to bring uh, David in is because um, one aspect of, of fandom and in kind of the DIY aesthetic is taking what you love and making it your career and um like david um you know who has a background in film licensing and actually i got hired by david at uh, blue underground when um when i got pulled out from behind the counter at hollywood book and poster to um to interview for a job over there um and that kind of sparked um my interest in licensing content and and i later struck out on my own as did david from blue underground but um, we'll get into that as, as we move along. But um, when did you first kind of realize that this was something that you really, really wanted to do? Well, I, it actually goes back to when I was at the summer job I had when I was in high school. I worked for a video distributor, a very small video distributor in Nottingham, England. And I did, I'd just gone in there one day to find out if they had any banned movies, any illegal movies. And the video just, nasties. The video nasties, because that's what we would collect, Carl and I, um, Carl being my uh, uh, other partner in Severin Films. Carl Daft, my, uh, my twin brother, who had the exact same birthday. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And then uh, and I ended up working for this guy, Andrew Clark, at VPM Distribution, which really just did uh, a, a lot of budget movies, a lot of kind of uh, businesses going out of sale. They would pick up all the movies. And I ended up just kind of learning about distribution from him because I would be on the phone selling, it, selling these tapes to the HMVs. I would be packing the boxes, driving them up and down the country in England, that He's kind like of stuff. The five pence Tesco releases and stuff exactly like that. that sort of thing. But he was the one who kind of told me I, I would got, get a kind of a copy of the Beyond on Elephant Video, which was clearly a bootleg. Yeah, um, but Lucio Fulci's The Beyond. Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, and I was like, why aren't they putting you know proper artwork on this? Why? Uh, and he's like, well, you sort if you put some effort into it you really should actually license the film and then you know we've got to talking about uh, you know what it takes to license a movie contacting the producers that kind of stuff and then Carl and I um, when I was in college in Boston 
we actually uh, did a deal for the rights to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to give a shout out. Got to give a shout out to the school. Emerson College Emerson in Boston. Emerson College in Boston. <laughs> exactly. How interesting. <laughs> Which will come back into the story. We will come back to the story. <laughs> um, so there I was uh, I was studying film and making films and stuff. And anyway, we, we, we got a license for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But our head censor in England said that uh, over his dead body, will that film uh, come yeah. out Get in England? Released. So we never did the deal. Well, then he dropped dead, thankfully. And uh, we went back and to do the license but somebody else had actually beaten us to it and we were like damn it um so then oh then i just made a documentary about the texas chainsaw massacre called the shocking truth feature length just to cash in on the release the release of texas chainsaw. sure because there was there was enough interest in the title and, and a yeah, it was like a new band. film at that point and it was 1997 uh, no 99 i think it was yeah, yeah yeah so that's that's a good well it's 25 26 years after the release of the film. Right. But yeah, it's it's hitting the country for the first time. Now, was this before or after you guys took um, Last House on the Left, County by County? It was, it was before. And in fact, Carl and I had started licensing other horror movies like Deranged and uh, Maniac and Vigilante and Dead of Death Dream and Hated Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies and, yeah. you know, cult stuff, basically, and putting yeah. them out on VHS. And a lot of them got cut because of the, the censorship that, that we had. And we were very, very sick of this by now, as we were as film collectors when we were kids. Um, but Last House on the Left was another one that we that we decided we're just going to go for it and try and get it through the censors. The censors wouldn't allow it, which we knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we actually took them to court. But it was it was kangaroo court. That's how it works in England. They basically, if you want to challenge the censors, you have to go basically to the censors' private little court with the censors' friends, and they will sit there and uh, and listen to all your arguments and then basically tell you that the film is uh, obscene and likely to deprave and corrupt uh, people in England. And essentially, what the what they were saying without actually saying it it was that we don't want you know poor people watching this stuff because it'll turn them into sex crazed maniacs wow wow and now at that point Wes Craven had kind of had a rebirth through the Scream franchise. Yes. So there was a secondary reason. Well, and he was already, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven. Yeah, so Wes yeah. Craven was pretty... But there, were, there was a lull res- there, too. ...respectable. Yeah, even, even after he had come back with Nightmare on Elm Street, there was that lull. Yeah. And, um, and by the time Scream comes around, I mean, he's one of the most respected directors in Hollywood because he's just like a money machine who creates a new franchise. You know, what James Wan would become, uh, Wes Craven was becoming first. And so after doing all this stuff, and you you named off a couple of titles that are going to play very prominently into the stuff that we were working on together later on at Blue Underground. Mm -hmm. So you had released on on VHS Deranged, um, which didn't come out through us, I don't think, right? That came out through... No, it didn't, because it turned out it was actually owned by MGM, but some guy in Virginia was claiming to uh, own it, so he licensed it to us. And... um, uh, and and our company in England was called Blue Underground. That was mine and mine and Carl's company, and our label was called Exploited. But yeah. then I met Bill Lustig while making Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Shocking Truth. He was producing all the 
DVDs for Anchor Bay, and he needed somebody to do all the featurettes for Anchor Bay because they were they were aggressively licensing titles. Yeah. They just picked up Studio Canal catalog and they had The Wicker Man and mm. a hundred other titles. Yeah, but yeah. being as I was in England, he said, yeah. "Do a documentary on The Wicker Man." Yeah. I did that. Came out here to edit it. He liked it and said, "Hey, do you want to stay on and do the featurettes?" And so, Blue Underground comes from Blue Velvet and the Velvet Underground. That's and correct. just take that one word out of the middle that connects the two, like on a TV game show, and you've got you've got Blue Underground. That's right. And, and Severin is also inspired by a Velvet Underground uh, lyric. Aha. Uh-huh. Which song? Venus in Furs. Of course. Because Severin is uh, and, the, the protagonist of uh, Venus in Furs. Right, right. And yeah, so you get back into Jess Franco and, and some of the other wonderful work that we, we've done over the years. So now... Um, when you came to Eng- you, now this was before or a- this was after you graduated Emerson yeah after I graduated from Emerson I came out here for a year to you know follow my uh, filmmaking dreams that uh, didn't work in the one year that I had a visa uh, to stay right. in America after after going to after college the student visa goes away right so right. I moved back to England and actually working for that same guy that I used to work for but by this point he'd amassed a bunch of equipment from some you know company that went bankrupt so he was like just go off and start using the equipment editing and camera equipment mm-hmm. he had a, a beta sp camera and so that's when i started doing sort of local interest documentaries for him and you know learning about making documentaries which is sort of still something that i'm doing all the time right right now when you when you came back um after talking to bill and after working on um on wicker man um, this is when he was still on the lot up at um, Universal. Correct. So yeah, was this was the... before. So yeah, we were actually on the Universal lot. It was yeah. it was uh, it was kind of fun to to come out here, and then he and he just kept on giving me more and more work. I was still I was still freelance. I was still working for my company, Blue Underground, right. in the UK, but coming out here to shoot all the interviews, and that's why he formed Blue Underground in the US just as a production entity for Anchor Bay, so for, to to limit. Bay's liability and then he had uh, after we did lots and lots of titles for Anchor Bay then you know there was a bit of a divorce process that went on between Lustig and uh, and Anchor Bay and right. then he then he the handling started, company really in particular yeah I mean yeah. they kind of they kind of you know they took notice when it started to make a lot of money and all the stuff that Bill and Jay had been doing, um, licensing the Argento films, the Fulci's, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of, uh, of of great titles that hadn't really seen decent releases in the US. Right. They were snapping them up, all the Hammer films, you know, and uh, and of course then, you know... The, Amicus the, and everything else. Yeah, all the Studio Canal titles, Manuel to Earth, Emmanuel, mm-hmm. you know, Suspiria, um, and just any number of films. And at one point we had... Uh, four editors working you know the day and the night shift and that, that you you yeah. were at the company at that point yeah so now the um the the principles that we're talking about here are uh, Bill Lustig, who was the director of Maniac, one of the films that you had licensed uh, for the UK. Yeah, Maniac and Vigilante, I licensed, which were both his. Yep, and um, and so he was known as kind of this underground filmmaker and he had worked in in porn he had done like the violation of claudia under a pseudonym and hot honey and hot under, honey. The pseud- under the pseudonym billy bag billy which bag. he got because uh, when he was a delivery boy he would uh, go to all these car mechanics and stuff like that in manhattan he said you know i'll take anything you want as long as you put it in a bag so <laughs> they yeah uh, so 
that, that's how we got the nickname Billy Bag. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and then um, we've also got uh, Jay Douglas, who was uh, one of the principals behind um, the Handelman Company, and had been a guy through like Tower Records and in the music industry, had been a licensing guy and an A and R guy, and then found himself as the leader of this kind of new frontier of catalog title licensing at a company that had a huge market share at that point. Yes. And so Jay ended up coming back um, after the the big shakedowns that ha- that happened in the shakedowns it sounds like it's a you know criminal organization. But um when the um when the dust settled, I guess I should say, in the collapse of the home video market, um, Jay ended up going over to one of the people that had been under the distribution arm of Ryko and Rhino and Warner Music, who had absorbed the companies that were distributing um, our Blue Underground titles. And at that point, after I left Blue Underground and it, it was doing Panic House, and you had started Severin, and a couple of our, our other former coworkers were doing titles like No Shame and... Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, even even um, even Synapse and uh, and um, Subversive, yeah. you know, had had some link with with Lustig at some point. So there's kind of a a Corman element to Bill Lustig, and yeah. the fact that he kind of he he was very good at um, you know finding people who were passionate about this stuff and wanted to work hard and get it done. He's and the then, Brian Epstein of home video, <laughs> indeed. And uh, and even the the other guys, uh, Perry and RJ, that work with us at, yeah. uh, at Blue Underground, they ended up staying on at Anchor Bay and. Continuing, at so stars, we all kind of yeah. went off and 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 worked either our own labels or four labels. Right, right. And um, but when we did get to the Olive Office, and I'm, this is about two thousand two thousand one, um, and I came in shortly after that because um, I had actually gotten hired um, while I was in Japan, I think, and I was in Japan after um, initially meeting with you, and you mentioned that you had um, you had gone to to Emerson College. Yeah. Yeah, you said you were you said you were from Massachusetts, and uh, yeah. I said I went to college in Massachusetts, and you said which one? I said Emerson, and you said oh, I used to deal drugs at Emerson. <laughs> yes, I did. And I was like, I did right. say that. Yes, interview over. He's like, he's hired. Hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, part of that DOI aesthetic, folks. So the um, I hope we don't lose any advertisers over that. But the um, when I and then I think September 11th happened actually and then um, that's right we me and Lustig and Joyce were all in um, we're all in Europe when that happened yeah and couldn't get flights out couldn't get back yeah and I think I started in the office in January so it was January 2002 I think mm-hmm. was when I was actually in the office and I was I started out as an assistant editor and then um, just kind of changed the title of the position because I didn't think it fairly addressed what I did that I didn't really feel like an assistant editor. Yeah, I don't think you were ever an assistant editor. That was yeah. just kind of what what we needed was somebody to do the research and 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 find the materials that would basically, you know, form a huge part of these featurettes that we were doing with IE uh, you know, advertising materials and stills and stuff like that. And, and you know, it's much easier on the internet these days to find, you know, a poster for some s- obscure movie right. that some interviewee is mentioning. But back then, you were at the Academy Library all the time. Yeah. You were on uh, online, you know, you were calling your contacts in the poster world, all that kind of thing to yeah. find stuff to illustrate the featurettes we were editing. And it's funny because if you look at the stuff that came out just prior to that, there was a lot less cutaway. Um, not having as much materials to fill the space because the people that were finding materials before just didn't know where to look. 
Yes. And um, I had a Well, also, also, I mean, the, that world was changing. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and again, I think it was, uh, it, was, it was a credit to Bill because he actually really wanted to make proper productions. He would not settle for uh, shitty feature, featurettes. Yeah. He wanted them to be, you know, even if they were 10 minutes long, he wanted them to play like a 10-minute program that right. was a professional program not just some unedited interview that was shot without lights and, and that, that used to drive us bananas because you know we would look at criterion collection stuff and criterion had this great reputation and i'm not going to bag on him because it was a very important part of i think my film education was going through those laser discs and collecting i at one point i had all of the criterion yeah. collection laser discs out of print ones the whole nine yards and when it went to dvd started re rebuilding it again from scratch and buying everything, and, and that meant buying a lot of stuff that I didn't really felt quite fit with the other films that were in their collection, considering the reputation of, the, of those formative films, mm -hmm. but that their featurettes weren't really much to write home about. No, they're, uh, I, I agree with that, and uh, and still to this, I've, I've done some stuff for Criterion as well, and I think that, you know, they certainly set the bar as far as, you know, what what, what is a special edition of a movie on, on, on Laserdisc, right. but it was very soon afterwards that, that um, you know, Anchor Bay and other companies were starting to do that, and people still to this day say a Criterion level special edition, and I think you know us, but and lots of other companies do a Criterion level special edition of of any number of films. I mean, yeah. if you look at Santa Sangre, for example, yeah, um, you know, I think it's probably a bigger edition, or or Doctor Butcher MD, which is yeah. coming out next Tuesday. We have put a lot, a lot, a lot of work into that in the feature and and the extra. So really, they should be saying a Severin level edition of whatever fucking art film that they're putting out. I mean, and you can go back and compare because there were films that were licensed I'm by being both. facetious there. Obviously, Criterion <laughs> still do do actually hold the, uh, you know, are the bar that people aspire to, yeah. particularly on the restoration of the films and the films they get. Which so. also, I have a bone to pick about some of their restoration, but the, um, and I don't want it to seem like I've got some kind of axiogram. I honestly don't, and I still buy their stuff. I, the last maybe five DVDs that I've purchased were Criterion DVDs uh -huh. or were Blu-rays, um, with the exception of Samsara, which you also did features on. I did, yeah. and um, which I think is an amazing, amazing Blu-ray. Yeah, well, I did. I did the stuff on that was the stuff I did on Samsara was because I did a big documentary on the making of Baraka. Baraka, yeah. Um, and then the guy who produced it, Mark Madison, actually, when he was making Samsara, just wanted kind of five short featurettes mm -hmm. uh, to go on Samsara. What he didn't want to do was kind of pull back the curtain, uh, which we kind of did on on Baraka. He was very, he was kind of reluctant to reveal because there's a lot of secrecy around. Right. There was around the making of Baraka and how they got these images and, you know, what it all meant and, and all that kind of thing. And I think we, um, you know, he was reluctant to go to, into too much detail. But I worked very closely with him on that to make sure that he was comfortable with what we did show. And Baraka mm -hmm. at that point, I think, was... 20 years old maybe yeah, no yeah. it was it like had come out before 15 years old i think at that point because it came out in the, like 93 i think yeah i i'd got i'd had the laser disc i replaced it with the dvd and then when you told me you were working on the featurettes for the blu-ray that disc had been out of print and started getting valuable yeah and so i was like well it's coming out so i'll sell my dvd yeah. for and, well, the, and then they money. did i think the first 
4K scan. It might have been an 8K scan, actually, but it was something yeah. crazy that they were trying new technology in order yeah. to do that Blu-ray. And it is an, it is an absolute immaculate Blu-ray yeah. that was put out by uh, MPI. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break here and hear from one of our sponsors, and then when we get back, we're going to dig into um, a little bit more about what's involved, really, in running an independent licensing label and we can talk about um, a little bit more of the history of, of the genre medium on DVD, but also about um, how the numbers have changed and, and what, what um, quantifies a successful release and um, the many hats that you end up wearing when you run an independent company. So uh, stay tuned uh, for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back in just a moment. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me here today Mr. David Gregory, uh, not the ABC News correspondent, but um, the principal behind Severn Films um, and a filmmaker in his own right. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the films that you've made. But um, we're also going to dig even deeper into what we we're talking about before our break about um, what's involved in, in running a small label. And we mentioned, you know, that you had worked on. Baraka and Samsara, which were not seven releases. Mm -hmm. And part of that's because when you're known for doing something really well, and I think, you know, many of the special featurettes that um, that you directed and, and some of which I, I had the pleasure to work on at Blue Underground and then um, in Anchor Bay, that I think the one that really became like a, a, a pretty serious cause and is a feature length film of itself is that Godfather's a Mondo documentary that was on the Mondo Kane box set. Yeah. And that was like a two year undertaking. Yeah. The whole, like the whole box set was, I mean, yeah. I think, um, uh, I think I went to Lustig and said, you know, we should put out the Jacopetti and Prosperi Mondo movies. Uh, from my point of view, I wanted to know more about Jacopetti and Prosperi, yeah. so I wanted to get to make a documentary about them, and therefore, um, you know, by having the movies would allow me to do a featurette. And it was never initially conceived as a feature, but once Lustig um, licensed Mondokane, Mondokane Two, Women of the World, and Africa Adio, then realized there was a separate version of Africa Adio, and then he, I remember that day in my office where he was like. We should get Goodbye Uncle Tom. Yeah. And I, at that point, didn't know what Goodbye Uncle Tom was. And yeah. then he just put his head in his hands and just started giggling and was just like, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. We thought we were going to get run out of town for that movie. <laughs> yes. I mean, there, there were two releases that we put out that we really expected a huge backlash for. One was Emmanuel in America yeah. um, because that had never been released uncut in, yeah. the, in the world in any format. And um, we did release it uncut. It mm -hmm. has um, bestiality in it. Yeah. And a lot of, and very convincing fake snuff footage. Yeah, the snuff time. footage is, yeah, the snuff footage is amazing by Janetta De Rossi, who did the effects on Zombie and mm -hmm. Living Dead at Manchester Morgan, The Beyond and stuff like that. So he was a pretty well-versed in gore. Yeah. And so they just, but the funny thing is about that uh, is that Joe D'Amato, who, who directed it, and we've put out quite a lot of his films on Severin, he, I, I think he was just a prankster. I think he just sat down with his, uh, with his co-writers, and I'm not sure there was ever a full script on these films. Mm -hmm. But they just had dinner, wine, and was just like, you know, how can we, how can we mess with people? You yeah. know, how can we come up with the most outrageous things that we can put in an Emmanuel movie? Yeah. Uh, because I can't imagine anybody coming out of that movie after seeing that 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 kind of snuff subplot. 
you know, with a boner. Right. I mean, it was right. basically. <laughs> yeah, these these were no longer sexploitation films. I mean, it was a really hectic thing. Yeah. It still has, you know, the there's the eroticism of the. Laura yeah, it Gems stars Laura Gemser, and she's yeah. absolutely beautiful. And it's got all that great, you know, um, footage from around the world, which was typical mm-hmm. of those uh, Emmanuel ripoffs. And it's a beautifully shot movie, mm-hmm. but there you are, all of a sudden, you know, there's all this torture and things yeah, like that going yeah. on. So that's what makes it so unique. I mean, in a way, you can kind of consider him a really early culture jammer in that way. And and not in the way that it's like a mashup of different things, but that it, it very well could have intentionally been like, hey, let's really mess with the audience of these films. Yeah. He was probably tired of making that, that you know, the, the simple erotica films. And he started tackling slightly more complicated themes in, in the horror movies. But the joke was Definitely. kind of on him because then he couldn't leave Italy for two years. He was kind of under like a, yeah. a countrywide. But house I mean, arrest. he was one of the he was one of the directors who was constantly working though, right yeah. up until he died. I mean, he he was he was producing. There's a lot of films that don't even have his name on. Yeah. He was shooting. He was directing. He was Caligula. producing. He was doing. You know, and lots of people owe you know their careers to him. He yeah. also was kind of a Corman type, who yeah. you know, after Laura Gemser was too old to star in Emmanuel movies, she became a costume designer, and right. that was you know her career until she got remarried. Right. Uh, people like Claudio Fragasso, who made Troll Two, yeah. um, Joe D'Amato produced Troll Two, and uh, and uh, it was just his company, and, and and gave a lot of people kind of a break. Yeah, and then um, and then you know we we're talking about the other film that really we, we were convinced was going to get us in trouble was was goodbye uncle tom or adio um zio tom and we released both versions of that in the slipcase in the dvd for the mondo Kane box set and because of its really unrepentant and you know not niced up view of what yeah. slavery was like um and the title more than anything because i think the title doesn't really do the film justice yeah and that was part of the problem and i think it was part of the problem when it was released in italy yeah, you know that um, people saw this title and they were shocked by it. And... Well, it's because they, they Adio Zio Tom was after Africa Adio came out, and yeah. Africa Adio was uh, had a certain amount of notoriety, and Jacopetti and Prosperi were known at that point for for delivering a certain kind of film, yeah. and um, and that it was know, shocking, and that it, you know it's, that it's is extremely an shocking. And I mean, there's there's long debates to be had about you know the depiction of, of what they depict in the film, yeah. and you know why. Um, uh, you know why it's racist to actually depict something like that as 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 graphically as they do, and it's mm. you know, it's very complex. The problem, of course, being that they went to Haiti to shoot it and did actually exploit people yeah. in order to make it. To make so it, it yeah. Was, I mean, it kind of like sort of takes away their argument because Prosperi, yeah. who is really the kind of anthropologist of the two of them, he's uh, he's the less sensational of the two of yeah. them. He was he was fascinated by history and he was doing his research and. You know, and again, this is why I wanted to make The Godfathers of Mondo, because the two guys themselves are, you know, that they complemented each other in their personalities and what their talents were as filmmakers. But when you look at the films, um, they're real filmmakers, whatever, whatever you say about the uh, 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 about 
uh, you know what what controversial uh, things are in the films. Mm. You know these guys in some pl- ways they were putting themselves in harm's way in order yeah. to get the footage. In and certainly they almost died. No shooting, others, yeah, you know. exactly. No other people were doing that, and they were getting incredible footage that just wasn't available in any way yeah. at the time. So to me, that was fascinating, and I wanted to know. Everybody had an opinion about them, and there was lots written about them. But certainly in the English language, there was n- very little I could find that was yeah. them directly talking about their filmmaking. So that's why I wanted to do that. Yeah, and, and we had footage of the plane crash that almost killed one of them and yep. their cameraman. Um, I, f- I think I scanned over 500 photo negatives. That's right. Just for that documentary. And that doesn't even include all the other galleries that we had on the individual discs we tracked down all kinds of discarded um, artwork for the films because it took a long time for several of their movies to come out so you'd see advertisements in variety for a film that was scheduled to come out and hadn't picked up a distributor and then the art would change that, that would happen quite a bit with some of the titles yeah, and it was an eight-disc set. I mean, yeah. that was a very ambitious, very ambitious release. Even at that time, when there was still quite a big market for DVDs, it was uh, you know it was a it was a huge undertaking, and I think it's still still one of the ones that we you know, that sits on the sits on the shelf, pretty proud of being yeah. involved in that. Yeah, that that stands the test of time, and and your documentary is is as good as any theatrical documentary that came out that year, and as as a film about filmmakers. It's one of the best. And when I see some of the extras that make it on to Criterion Discs where it's just like a one-camera interview and then when the scene cuts, it just cuts and it fades to nothing and it comes back up and they're talking, I'm like, there's no infrastructure here. I mean, we would yeah. never have allowed that on, no. a, on a Blown and Gone release, that you would never see a cut. It would go to a image of something they were talking about, whether it's, you know, a, a, a rare... Yeah. fish meal that the director was having yeah. trying to find well, well, yeah, images of Jess, Fra- Jess Franco loved to talk about the food that he would yeah. have on, on the event which is amazing that he had this clear memory but that's what stuck out to him was music and food and, yeah. and the culture of the places where he was shooting the films more than the films in themselves in yeah, a lot of cases yeah. but um but yeah i mean and that was the other thing that used to frustrate the hell out of me is that uh, and it still does is that sometimes people are do uh, have featurettes just so they can list something on the yeah, back yeah and often it's it's poorly edited if at all you know there's yeah. a lot of stuff in there that that has no business has, has no interest to the audience the zombie all. two release is very signature for that that um we there were two or three different releases of zombie two that came out at the same time we and at blue underground we had to make a deal with uh media blasters and kind of agree to disagree on who owned the rights and that they wanted to do their three disc release but they couldn't have our featurettes and so um all their interviews are have terrible sound terrible video and they interviewed absolutely everybody most of whom couldn't remember anything about the film so well, to watch those extras is and, and it is it isn't uncommon for for people not to be able to remember you know a film they worked on 30 years ago which yeah. which was just a job to them you right. know it's not is it zombie zombie to us is uh, it means a lot but yeah. it didn't necessarily mean a lot to them at the time but that's fine don't just don't leave it in the featurette where yeah. they're just like i don't remember that but yeah. having said that also um the guys who made that, you know, they were not given, uh, they were not given 
uh, kind of the the working environment, as yeah. far as I'm aware, or, or the that, that, that we that we were, had, yeah. uh, in order to be able to actually edit the stuff. So it yeah. was left unedited. Now we're putting out uh, Burial Ground, the uh, Andrea cla- Bianchi, Andrea Bianchi's awesome, uh, crazy, nipple biting um, yeah. uh, zombie picture. But and we are and we have got the interviews with Gabriella Crisanti, who's dead now, mm-hmm. and um, Mariangela Giordano, who's um, can't be interviewed anymore. She's getting up there mm. and we have actually edited those interviews into a featurette with clips and stuff like yeah. that and it's uh and it just plays better when you've when you put the work into it yeah yeah constantly so the um having having i think exhausted the explanation of what goes into making some of these <laughs> dvds but um i think that also the people people really don't understand how much work goes into it and like you say now it is easier to find images but finding images and finding images that you can use and put into a documentary are very different and um, that usually involves a lot of cleanup um, or ordering and photographing posters. We used to borrow a lot of materials and then pay to have those photographed mm-hmm. so that we had high res enough images to, to work from. And um, I know when I was releasing the Toei films that I licensed that I had way more posters and images from their films than they had to loan us. Yeah. So when I licensed a six film box set, I think I got nine images, uh, six of which were black and white photos from one movie. Yeah. So I didn't get poster images <laughs> or key art for most of them, but I had been collecting that stuff and I knew that genre well enough that I could I could have it covered. But um, so just because you license the rights to a movie, number one doesn't mean that you get any materials, but it doesn't even mean you get a master of the film. Correct. Right. Oh, absolutely. And in fact... Uh uh, I, I, sometimes they they don't have materials for you to make a master of the film, so that's that's one of the problems that you face is that you need to know if there is a negative or an interpositive or something like that to uh, to actually work from in order mm-hmm. to make that. And they, uh, you know, and sometimes they don't really take into account the amount of work that you're putting into it, and they just say, you know, well, can you? Make a copy of that master you made for me, will you? Yeah, <laughs> so that's yeah. that cost. That cost more than the license to the movie. Yeah. You're gonna have to pay for it. Yeah, generally, know? almost all the films that we did at Blue Underground had a much higher production budget oh, than much, a licensing yeah, budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. three times. Yeah, in some those cases. costs. Those costs have come down quite considerably now. Yeah. But certainly back then, when we were doing everything at you know a proper facility in Hollywood at Crest, they were those hourly rates of uh, cleaning up the films and color correcting were huge. Yeah, it was not uncommon to spend. $18,000 on telecineing and cleaning mm-hmm. up. The, there would be numbers uh, given to the amount Oh, I, I would say that, uh, that some of those Mondo movies went up towards $100,000. Oh, to clean up, to, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And um, But by the time, like towards my end um, of being in that part of the business, I think that we were spending about $18,000 per title and that we could take leftover time from one title and slide it over to another because we were doing them all at the same facilities. But mm. then those costs came way down. Like um, just even the cost of like finding people who had not necessarily, you know, your Mona Lisa uh, da Vinci um, machine to, to do cleanup. But once you had the master done that they could go in and do cleanup relatively less expensively and you could do color correction on a laptop. Yeah. And um, so that brought down the costs and even like. In the early days, subtitling cost a fortune, and now that's gotten a lot less expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, you can't really you can't really do color correction on a laptop because you need the properly color calibrated monitor right. in order to do that. But yeah, certainly a lot of a lot of that stuff can now be done, and we can watch it on our own, uh, you know, laptops yeah. and stuff like that when it's done. So there's so there's a lot less people involved and a lot 
uh, you know, smaller companies and individuals who can actually do the work that that wasn't possible back then. But the market share has gone away completely. It's 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 dropped it's dropped considerably. And I think um, now at Severin, we we have to be releasing very special editions yeah. in order for it to be worthwhile picking up. And there is still people who want that, including myself. Including if there's me, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's if there's a special edition of a uh, of a of a movie that I'm particularly fond of, that I, I want it on my shelf. And there's you know there's a couple of directors that we have in common as far as you know people that I think we think of as among the best filmmakers in the world. And I think what you guys did with Santa Sangre is certainly yeah that is that is as good as any DVD that anybody has ever released. And as a Blu-ray, it's probably top twenty. Yeah, you know that that <laughs> the amount of work and love that went into that film. And, and it I mean, was a movie we were movie. trying, we were trying to get the rights to for, for years, years, for yeah. years, and back when we were at Blue Underground, maybe even back when in the Anchor Bay days, but yeah. it was, but it was tied up, and then Anchor Bay put out that Hodorowski box box set, and Which, they could not get Santa Sandra. I know, and yeah. um, and I had called Jody Klein from my desk in that back of that editing suite to ask why weren't these films available? Yeah, and that she. I got a story from an assistant and then I think I ended up talking to Jody and the story that I got was that um, that they they weren't sure exactly you know what their intentions were with the film and then asked us asked me where we did our cleanup and they sent those masters to the same place that Anchor Bay was using uh-huh. so in a conversation with people like Alan you know Alan Falk over it who was at Chase at Audio Sound at yeah. the time and now he runs um, Post Haste Digital Post Haste Digital which is like the best sound company in Hollywood uh-huh. um, and, well, and 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 vis- video now as well they do yeah. digital restoration and everything to their one stop shop <laughs> um, great people great guy and I think a conversation with somebody at Anchor Bay or with someone over there is like oh well we have those we have the masters here mm-hmm. right now may have actually helped facilitated that coming out and I mean <laughs> fantastic I'd still like to, I have my DVD box set and I, I wasn't able to upgrade when it first came out the the Blu-ray box which yeah. I guess went out of print immediately it did, yeah yeah <clears throat> but by the time uh, by the time Santa Sangre became available, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we were on the case of this guy Lars Block in 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 Europe for years, about yeah. he's like I'm, we're, it's almost we're almost there, we're almost there, and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and uh, he licensed it to us. So that to me was a real holy grail because that's one of my favorite awesome movies favorite of all movies. time, and there was no way I was going to let that go out without some serious stuff on the disc. And you almost got to direct Jodorowsky. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I did direct him in that at that interview. Well, I interviewed him in that interview, and uh, he's a prickly character, mm-hmm. but he always gives you know a very you know like Jess Franco or or Roman Polanski. You know, you know, you're going to get a very very interesting interview. But you almost directed him as an actor. Well, that wouldn't have been me. We we talked about having him be the the wraparound guy in right. the Theatre Bazaar, which ended up being played by Udo Kier. Right. Um and. He, um, I don't think he quite understood what it was we were asking of him. Right. But uh, we were going to get him for a day, and we'd come to an agreement on a payment and stuff like that. And then when he got, when he got Jeremy Kasten's script, uh, which basically has him as like kind of the, uh, the puppet master of the theater bazaar, who's the kind of guy who introduces 
the stories, the Peter Cushing character, essentially, the, yeah. in the Amicus films. Uh, he just came back and was like, I will be nobody's fucking puppet. You know? <laughs> that was pretty much the end of that. <laughs> but he had kind of used, like, excuses of health of not being able to travel, I think, at that time, too. And, and certainly he's made two more movies, possibly three more movies, as, as I yeah, say this. Two since then. Yeah, yeah. he made Dance of Reality and then the, the latest Endless Poetry, which I yeah. just saw in Cannes, which is phenomenal. Good, I put money into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you get your poetic money that I don't think I did and, and I, I tried he was supposed to send a video message to me too which mm. I, I don't think I got but I'll have to follow up on that well the him. way the way everybody's names are represented on, on screen at the end is pretty creative yeah mm-hmm. cool I can't wait to see that mm-hmm. so the um <clears throat> what else as far as like holy grails and things that um you've you've been able to go after and work have you been able to find and what films still seem to be elusive and um are there films that you think that you're pretty close to closing like i, I would love to see tusk finally come out on yeah some i just dis- i discussed tusk with uh, with hodo when we did the uh santa sangre interview and he, he he no longer disowns it and he said if he just got one day in an ed- edit suite and cut 10 minutes out of it it would be his film right and um so we spoke to gormont's and um, they said that they didn't own it anymore and that it reverted to the original producer and nobody knows how to get in touch with the original producer or where the film elements are. So that one's still kind of just, just in limbo. I mean, it's not, it's no Santa Sangre as far as right. I'm concerned. So it's, but it's, it's more of a curio, honestly. It's somewhere, <laughs> you know, near Rainbow Thief. Yeah, exactly, and that's also in limbo and not yeah. a great film at all. Right. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know about that, but uh, I mean, there are. Uh, I mean, we. I, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, Grail wise, um, for me, it's Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. I mean, they they, but unfortunately, Paul Morrissey has uh, has decided he's never going to license. Yeah, those them. have never come out uncut. And and every, well, well, no, they come out uncut, but they but they but they've never been out uh, on Blu-ray right here, and they're but old the Criterion masters. discs are cut and not very cleaned up. Yeah, no, they're they're old, and then it came out through. They both came out through Image. And uh, and they were okay, but you know they were DVDs from two thousand and three, I think, yeah. or two thousand and four, and so you know it's a long time since those films have been. And I've already you know started shooting the extras right. in the hope that someday this will happen yeah. because I went to the uh, I went to the Villa Parisi where where they shot Burial Ground mm-hmm. and Patrick still lives and Hatchet for a Honeymoon and Nightmare Sit- uh, Nightmare Castle. Mm-hmm. That is where they shot all of Blood for Dracula. So I while I was there, I got Stefania Cassini to come along and give us kind of a tour around the wow. place and, you know so that's just going to sit in the vault until maybe and but I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> I, I know I know Udo although uh, although Udo is like you know Paul Morrissey has been making money off these movies for years and, and I interviewed Joe D'Alessandro recently as yeah. well so that's still um, that's footage that exists so anyway I'm I, but but Paul Morrissey refuses refuses to license the films, and he owns it. He owns that, and he owns Flesh, Trash, and Heat, and Women in Revolt, and um, Trash is so good. Yeah, and uh, yeah, well, Trash I particularly like. Like yeah. Hollywood Lawn was in my student film because yeah. I was such a big fan of Trash, and Hollywood time. Lawn was a coworker of mine at Wacko. Yeah. yeah. The um now did Alan Young release the kind of like be all end all versions of those DVDs in Italy at one point? I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah. and so those McKelly are, was yeah was McKelly. In that. Yeah, and those were, as far as I know, uncut. Like they had footage that never made it mm-hmm. into any other release of the movies. Yeah, 
And but yeah, I was just talking about that the other day. It's funny you mentioned those. Yeah, well, that 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 for me, they're my favorites. But I'm sure I'm not the only one going after them. And if it really came down to a bidding war, we probably wouldn't get them. But in terms yeah. of passion <laughs> that would be put into those releases, I, I would be your man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what else have you been up to? I know that you've how many films have you directed at this point? Like features. Well, I, narrative features. Uh, Plague Town uh, obviously was my my debut feature, and then we did the Theatre Bazaar. That was an anthology that I did with other directors. I produced it um, uh, along with uh, Daryl Tucker and uh, John Cregan and Carl Daft, and. Um, um, that was a very good uh, experience in terms of like the actual production of the film because mm-hmm. everybody got the same kind of um, everybody was told to do the same thing just make a make a movie of a certain length that would play in the Grand Guignol Theatre if mm-hmm. the Grand Guignol Theatre was a movie theatre yeah. and, uh, and I think everybody you know everybody did a pretty good job considering what, what we had and uh, that brought you back in touch with Richard Stanley it did well no we were in touch with Richard Stanley because we'd brought out hardware right and hardware um, uh, it, it, Richard had been kind of off the map uh, for for a while and because he'd been living in Montsegur in the south of France and um, I went to visit him when we did the uh, after we'd put hardware out on Blu-ray to say you know would you be interested in doing one of these uh, one of these shorts for the Theatre Bazaar. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if he even was interested because after right. the whole Island of Dr. Moreau debacle, yeah. um, I thought he'd kind of given up on narrative films. He hadn't made one since. Mm-hmm. But no, it just so happens that a Ouija board had told him the night before that he needed to make The Mother of Toads. And then I came along and that's kind of why he made The Mother of Toads. Wow. And that's also what started us talking about Moreau, which led, led uh, to me doing the documentary Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Which is, again, considered by most people to be one of the great movies about a movie that never got made. Yeah, well, it did get made. It just didn't <laughs> get made the way it was supposed yeah. to get made. And, so a um, great double feature with Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah, yeah, which which that we were bit they were being made concurrently, and Richard yeah. is actually in Jodorowsky's Dune, and, mm-hmm. uh, and that is indeed a great movie. Uh, but... Uh, but La Soul was a real nice surprise for me because it was, um, uh, you know, it was kind of, a, it was certainly, I certainly knew it was a bigger undertaking than the yeah. average feature, even the feature length ones that I was doing. You know, I was licensing footage from around the world and clearing, uh, doing a lot of clearances yeah. and getting a lot of interviews from all over the world and that kind of thing. But the, but it was certainly, you know, very pleasantly for me well received and yeah. t- took me to a lot of festivals all over the place and got severing a lot of attention so yeah, i didn't see you cool. for like a year and a half or two years during yeah. that because you were just always oh, I, the I, I, yeah. I milked the traveling on, on <laughs> yeah. that one for sure but it took me to some amazing festivals like morbido in mexico mm. and um have you come across Val in Portugal? I've never come across Val Kilmer and I've never heard from him or his people. And I even know, uh, I even met with some stunt guy who knew him. He said, um, you know, I can get in touch with him if you want. This was after the movie had already played in Hollywood and, and at Fantastic Fest in Austin. Mm-hmm. And I said, by all means, you know, I'm, I'd be willing to, you know, go back and extend Cut the movie it, if, yeah. uh, if he has something to say. But I never heard anything yeah. from him. Not surprising. Yeah. I mean, I wanted him to to have his say, yeah, because because yeah. um, everybody you know, else a lot of a lot of people didn't him. really have very fond memories of him yeah. from that film. Yeah, well, that's cool. And what what else is in the works right now? Well, I'm uh, I'm working on a documentary about Al, Al Adamson, 
uh, for starters, which wow. came about because we were offered uh, one of his movies, and 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 again, kind of like Lost Soul, actually yeah. just started as as a blog post, and then ended up <laughs> blossoming into this massive undertaking. This was something where I wanted to do an extra on an Al Adamson movie, and the story and the characters just all of a sudden got more and more colourful. Yeah. That actually that became is going to be sort of the A feature, and we'll release some Al Adamson films with it. Yeah, and Al Adamson, the independent filmmaker of the Maverick generation, who made really low budget horror films, some of them sexually exploitive. But um, I was around when he got murdered. You know, like he was someone who used to he'd come into Goblin Market. You know, yeah, Donnie Gillespie's little video store on on Melrose. He'd come in every once in a while, and he would bring in sometimes tapes of of his films that were oh, yeah. impossible <laughs> to find. And he went out of contact for a bit, and it turned out that a handyman, straight out of the plot of an Al Adamson movie, had murdered him, and then um, sort of not quite buried him, but kind of bricked him away into a portion of his hot tub. Or yeah, something. well, basically he had um, he had a yeah he had his beloved jacuzzi in his yeah. place in Palm Desert, and his brother went to his house just looking around because he was missing, mm-hmm. and noticed the jacuzzi was not there and uh and had been was just like a bunch of concrete yeah and so that's when it just kind of dawned on him that that's probably where he is yeah. and, and in fact uh, sam sherman had had you know a dream the night before which said uh concrete and so wow. there's all these weird weird kind of stories that go into the and i don't want to just make the movie about kind of the sensational death of right, Al Adamson, right. but it's certainly a key part of the story um and so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff like that. But also, you know, people like John Bud Cardos, who's a director yeah. in his own right, you know, he's he he has a horse ranch now, and there's a lot of characters that they that he was able to wrangle out into the desert to just do, you know, dangerous stunts and stuff like that. Yeah. And nobody's going to say Al Adamson was was a great filmmaker, but it was more about, hey, this is what we got to do today. You guys come here, you know, yeah. fly and fly that plane and land it on top of that car and that kind of stuff. You know? Not unlike you know Dennis Hopper in, in a way yeah well you know? with the, the, you know I don't think Dennis Hopper was probably more of an artist than, than <laughs> I, <laughs> well yeah we'll, 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 we'll give him that for sure but I mean that he had this but, amazing crew of people yeah. around him that all did their own thing as well yeah and, and, and they were all uniquely uniquely talented and yeah. all went off to do you know their own their own films or or, or other aspects of life but for some yeah. reason he was able to bring the group together to yeah. to make Dracula versus Frankenstein or Satan sadists and, uh, and he also would hire um, actors at the end of their careers like Lon Chaney and J. Carroll Nash who yeah. you know he didn't realize that John they Carradine. couldn't speak or walk or something like that but they were still movie stars in his film so there's yeah. you know that's interesting stuff and the other one that I'm trying to do um depending on whether I can get the Bruces is is one on Bruce Bloitation, um, which was all those hundreds of Bruce Lee movies that were made in the wake of the death of Bruce Lee. With people with names like Bruce Lai. And or, Bruce Lai and, and Bruce Dragon Lee. Lee. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I, I want to make sure I can get those guys to talk about it. And Carter uh, Wong was, I think, one of the fake Bruce Lees at one point. Yeah. And it was, and what, but what's interesting about it is not, when you look at it, you think, you know, exit the dragon, enter the tiger and and you know the big boss part two and things Amsterdam like that connection too. just yeah. they're all um it, it seems like pure exploitation right but when i've talked to people about it there's this guy um that this guy who's writing a book called the 
Bruceploitation Bible. And that it was actually also sort of a way that um, the Hong Kong industry uh, were basically dealing with the death of their first international star. Yeah. And it was like kind of a mourning process and filling a gap mm. of that people wanted more Bruce Lee. They finally got this genre of their own. And all of a sudden it was just taken away from them. And the pure shock of the fact that technically one of the healthiest people alive just dropped dead was was you know a very strange thing possibly from a hash allergy yeah nobody you like know that? there's all kinds of yeah. and a lot of the movies the plots are about that the yeah thing, it's like yeah. how did he die and there's always some weird gangster connection that and they have to you know change his face in order to uh in order to solve the mystery and that's how they explain the fact that he doesn't look like bruce, bruce lee, lee for the yeah, movie it's you know? a different actor yeah. so it's it's a much more culturally impacted um variety a variation on say the Django mania, yeah. which was purely cash motivated. Although it is also quite possible that some of those movies had their own titles, and by the time they made it into the um, the English speaking yeah. market, that they became these Bruce Lee movies. Sure, and and exactly, and and basically, often often in the case of the the Italian films, the, mm. where they would you know take an American model and then just rip it off and and uh, and copy it. You know, the producers were thinking purely of, okay, well, I need to fill m these many movie theaters with a movie that looks like it's an American movie starring right. Clint Eastwood. The filmmakers themselves, they took it extremely seriously. And yeah. then, you know, so when you had people like, you know, Castellari and Corbucci and uh, Solomon and people like that, they, mm. whatever the assignment was, they weren't just going to treat it like some throwaway thing that they were doing just to make cash. They... They made some damn good movies. Yeah, I mean, some of those movies are much better than the movies that they would have been influenced yeah. by. And I think, and I think, in the Hong Kong industry, which is, I know much less about that than I do about the Italian. But it's you know, you know, these people, the stunts they were doing, and that the 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 work that sometimes they were working on, you know, five different films on five different days. They didn't mm -hmm. even know they were just we're off to work. We're going to do this fight scene on these poles, and you know, it's 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 a pretty fascinating thing that hasn't really again been um, been documented that well mm -hmm. in uh, in the English language. So. That's that's one that I really want to do, and I'm hoping to to go over to Hong Kong later this year to to shoot that. That'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one I think we're going to close on that, but um, but before we do, I also want to mention that um, some of the people who I've had on the show and and um, just people who who know me, you know, in real life, um, may recall that we used to do something called Disturbing Movie Night um, at my place on Tuesdays, and would bring in you know incredibly disturbing films and watch them sometimes to a night. And um, it's kind of like a really celebratory embrace of, you know, kind of fringe cinema. And most of the stuff that I started screening was stuff that came across our radar at some point <laughs> as either titles right. we would license, did license, um, you know, and and people would just like really enjoy it. And I had a lot of kind of relatively famous tastemakers that would come to these screenings. And it was at first just in my apartment. We did a couple of them, um, you know, out in the in, in the gallery after it was closed. And we're going to revive Disturbing Movie Night at La Luz de Jesus um, on Tuesdays. I'm not sure if it's going to be every week, but um, we're going to have a couple of them a month for sure. We're going to have our Disturbing Movie Night Club. And um, I've been talking to you about this, and we're going to do day and date releases of some of the Severin um, films so that people can buy the DVD at the event. Um, you know, we're talking about making some commemorative items, you know, some, uh, some vomit bags that are, uh, kind of, uh, that have images from the movie on them or some kind of connection back to the film. And that will be a, a keepsake as part of the ticket price. 
and that type of thing. And so, um, you know, definitely go to, is it severinfilms.com? Severin-films.com. And also follow Severin Films on Facebook because that's where we do all the exciting announcements and there's all kinds of special offers that just go directly to the fans of Severin. You know, uh, that would sometimes, you know, for example, on the Axe and Kidnap co-ed double feature we did, mm-hmm. um, if you got it from us, it was signed by the director, that sort of thing. Right, right. And so also you can uh, send an email to uh, info at laluzdejesus.com, which is the gallery. So it's uh, L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Um, and you can kind of send us an email and request to be put on the notification list of, of what's going to be on the, the docket, so to speak. And uh, you can sign up for our newsletter and, and we'll be announcing through our, our email list and on Facebook and probably Twitter and maybe Instagram. Um, all those all those types of, of titles and movies that we'll be including. So uh, I want to, again, thank you, David, for stopping by and chatting with us today, and especially in the middle of this exciting 10th anniversary of Seven Films. Indeed, indeed. Thank and, you for uh, having me. My pleasure. My best to Johnny Cregan and uh, Carl Daft when you see those guys. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll see each other again soon. And to the audience, uh, thanks for listening. And... By all means, please go and check out. You know, what I love about what we do is that we we cover a lot of ground and we mention a lot of films. And I really encourage you to check out on Google some of the titles that we've mentioned. You know, go back and look at some of the titles in the Blue Underground catalog. Look at stuff in the Panic House catalog. Go back and look and see what Severn has released. And, you know, go on IMDb and type in David Gregory's name and look at some of the projects that he's worked on because... While we were at Anchor Bay, we, were, we would also be doing projects for Warner Brothers and Paramount and did an amazing deer hunter documentary that appeared on a European deer hunter disc and um, and a lot of other really exciting projects. Did numerous right. Polanski uh, films Michael and Chimino, Russ Meyer. Michael Cimino died last week. Uh, I think it was the only on camera he did for one of his films on uh, on a DVD. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we did a commentary with him as well, but he did uh, he did the on camera for the Deer Hunter which was definitely one of the most unique interviews that we yeah. that we did. This was a very and he was f- starting to go through his um reassignment um identity. And so he was kind of in the middle of that and hadn't really completely um embraced, but it was unusual at that time for um someone as as famous as he to um to be comfortable enough to be interviewed and and I, he didn't address it it's just he's he talks about the movie yeah i mean i i i don't didn't know what to think when i he certainly was unrecognizable when yeah. when he didn't walk into the room he sat in the lobby and told the uh, told the guy to tell me told the concierge to tell me that he was there mm-hmm. and then we took care of the business outside and he had these huge sunglasses on and this big kind of Bon Jovi blonde hair mm-hmm. and uh, and but you know gave us a really fascinating interview yeah. you know I'm not sure that all of it was true he was cut from that that sort of Robert Evans cloth where it's like he's, he's definitely made a legend about himself but mm-hmm. my god was it, was it interesting and the other interview um, that stands out from, from that series of interviews is the um the John Savage interview. John Savage interview was. He was talks powerful. about losing yeah. his dad, you yeah. know, and it's no, it's, it's about his dad seeing him, uh, seeing the movie, and right, him, right? His face when thinking back about you know Vietnam War, and it was the first time that he'd seen his dad uh, uh, respect him and yeah. emotional, and yeah, no, it was pretty good. And we also got Vilmos Sigmund for that as well, who also unfortunately is no longer with us. But yeah. so that was three different, three separate interviews on that disc that I think were really uh, some of the best.
Mm-hmm. So again, look us up, you know, Google us, look at the things we've been talking about. I guarantee if, if you're at all interested in anything that we talk about in this program, that this will be interesting. And if you have any questions for, um, for David, you can contact him through the seven website. You can also send me, um, questions at info at pop sequentialism.com. And, um, we hope you enjoy this, this podcast and the others. We encourage you to go through and check out the other episodes. Cause if you like one, you'll probably like them all. And um, we'll talk to you very soon. I am Matt Kennedy. You have been enjoying Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.